This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to episode 9 in series 2 of From the Old Brewery, a podcast brought to you by the School of Language, Literature, Music and Visual Culture at the University of Aberdeen. My name is Ian Gross, a PhD research student in creative writing and I'm co-hosting today's episode with Shailini Vinod. Hi. Hi Ian and hello again to everyone listening. I'm Shailini, I'm a second year PhD scholar. I'm doing an interdisciplinary study with creative writing and sociology and our guest today is Dr. Shane Strachan, recently appointed as a lecturer in creative writing here at the University of Aberdeen. He graduated with a PhD from the University in 2015, following the creation of a short fiction collection focused on the decline of the fishing industry in Northeast Scotland and its impact on language and community. He's the current National Library of Scotland, Scots Scriver, writing new work in Doric inspired by the National Collections, as well as a creative non-fiction book, nevertheless, Sparking Tales in Bulawayo. His stories and poems have appeared in New Writing Scotland, Northwards Now, Gutter, Stand, and other national literary magazines and anthologies. He has also staged work with the National Theatre of Scotland and following the award of Scottish Book Trust Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship in 2018, he exhibited his spoken word project, The Bill Gibb Line, in Aberdeen Art Gallery across 2020-2021. So welcome, Shane. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'll just second that welcome. And... Uh, just to dive straight into it, I guess a good place to start might be to cast your mind back to the dim and distant days of 2015 and uh, just ask if you could tell us a little bit more about your PhD project and uh, how you think that might have shaped your writing practice and and yourself as a writer just going forward from, from there. Yeah, I've actually got to cast it even further back to 2011 <laughs> when I started. <laughs> and, uh, it came off the back of doing the Masters in Creative Writing first mm-hmm. and I yeah, had this desire to kind of keep having the framework and structure of university and I had um, obviously kind of academic research interests around particularly North East Scots and using Doric in my work and it was still like a bit of a puzzle that I was trying to work out mm-hmm. around what's the best way to make North East Scots accessible maybe for readers elsewhere that have never heard the dialect and what different styles or approaches could I take um, to presenting the language on the page. And so that was kind of the big question I had for my PhD research and why I wanted to continue into PhD mm-hmm. alongside representing the communities that I came from, fishing communities, and that sense of the kind of the changes in, in the language and the dialect um, being affected by the kind of decline of the fishing industry and how that impacted on you know, people in my family our livelihoods, our choices in life, yeah. <laughs> and how we spoke. So so you came from a fishing background? Yeah, okay. yeah. so I grew up in Fraserburgh in uh-huh. Peterhead, so I spoke Broad Doric, and do still speak Broad Doric. Um, obviously, code switch a lot more now. <laughs> and um, I, yeah, so I, I wanted to be a writer from a young age, and I, but I never really wrote stories in Scots, or thought to write in Scots, really, until I came to university and read the likes of Grasset Gibbon, and Kelman and that so I think for me finding my voice it kind of happened at university so I couldn't imagine like quite letting go of that and going off after the masters I think I needed more time so the the PhD was really useful in terms of 
and I was still quite young. I I started my PhD, um, I think, at twenty three years old. So I I'm still maybe a little bit immature voice wise, writing wise. So it just gave me those extra years to keep getting support and advice and having the time to build my craft and also getting started to get work published. Um, I think if I hadn't done it, I would have not be the point I am in my career now. It would have taken a lot longer to get my work out there and it would take a lot longer to get um, things written. <laughs> so yeah. having that structure. The deadlines. Yeah, yeah, in a sense. And it, 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 having the academic framework actually and the reflexive framework was really important to getting me to be aware of, you know, what I'm writing, why am I writing it? Um, in a way that I think a lot of writers outside of that context maybe aren't reflecting on their practice in that way a lot of the time. And, mm -hmm in the way that an artist would, you know, writing an artist statement, what are you, what's your work about? I think a lot of writers just write and then send it off. <laughs> and then they're asked to write a bio and they've got to think, oh, okay, other than what I've been publishing and those kind of things, what do I actually write about? And it can be a bit of a shock to the system. So I was working all that out during the PhD um, and needed the support to get to where I'm at now. So yeah, it was a really formative experience for me in many ways but actually you know I never thought I would do a PhD I didn't really know what a PhD was until I was doing one <laughs> to be honest like yeah we're all still trying to figure it out <laughs> so yeah it's it's one of those things like coming from Fraser as well like going to uni itself was always I only applied to come to Aberdeen like everything felt like a big step so it's uh it, it was really yeah, transformative in terms of changing my perceptions of myself and what was possible creatively academically so having more time with that was great so helping you helping you to find voice and establish that voice which yeah is, which is a very you know strong and distinctive one it's, it's really lovely listening to how much you've done at such a young age uh, I'm sure it's going to inspire a lot of people and how you know other than being a creative writer you're looking at it as being an artist and uh, personally for myself being a dancer practicing sketching I have recently read about your Crampian Hospital Arts Trust project would you be able to tell us a little more about it yeah, that was something um, that I'd been working on over the last few years. Before I took up this post, it finished up at the start of last year, and um, I was approached by Grampian Hospitals Arts Trust to uh, work on a project called Shared Collective Heritage, which was a way for them to kind of connect with the 30 years they've had of putting artworks into hospitals and try to find a narrative across that. Mm -hmm. So bringing a writer in almost as a consultant yeah. um, but as well as helping them find an art for kind of how have they brought communities together, artistic communities, the medical community mm -hmm. together. I also was creating new work in response to the artworks and getting communities to do that, um, whether that be through a kind of well-being focus or kind of for people to pass the time waiting in the waiting room so that they can kind of focus on that instead of worrying about their loved ones. Um, and I, I love looking at visual art to inspire yeah. particularly poetry yeah. I find it, for me I, I would say I'm naturally more of a prose writer but mm -hmm. when it comes to I get commissioned a lot to write poems and then I'm like okay where do I start and <laughs> for me you know good poetry is concrete it's mm -hmm. visual um, and obviously sound and all that is really important as well especially writing in Doric but you know just as an inspiration a starting point I often will look at paintings and mm -hmm. or photographs or you know go for a walk and you know taking in senses and things so being able to do that process with people in the hospital space, including staff or yeah. visitors, patients, that was kind of a, a focus, but it, it started before the pandemic. Yeah. A lot of it ended up having to 
happened online the mm. hospital was one of the last places you could re-enter for a long time yeah. so it was quite disrupted but it was one of a few projects where I've worked with communities and yeah. with another another discipline in the mix yeah. as well so it was it was quite nice to be asked to do that it wasn't something I applied for but I think it's, mm -hmm. it was building on other things I and it, it was kind of approached by someone I'd worked with before okay. when I previously worked at Aberdeen City Council's creative learning team which was the first job I had after okay. my PhD so it was all kind of a culmination of a few things um, that have has come out of working in a multidisciplinary way. Uh, but yeah, the visual arts tends to be the one I come back to a lot, but uh, yeah, dance. I've worked with dancers, I've worked with <laughs> musicians and things, and it, I think it's just, yeah, never imagined it when I was doing my PhD that, um, or before that point, that I would work across disciplines and, and it's really become a big part of my practice that not everything is about being published, yeah. you can engage people in other ways. Yeah, making it more multidimensional and yeah. uh, fluid, I suppose. Yeah, and learning from other artistic practices. Mm. When I've worked with visual artists, uh, I've worked on a theatre project with a visual artist and we were brought together through the National Theatre Scotland through this thing called One Day to Play and we just had to come up with a piece of theatre that mm -hmm. was connected to both our practices and we went round Aberdeen listening on people's conversations and well, I listened in <laughs> people's conversations and she drew people oh. and then we presented what we what she saw and what I heard and how these might interlink or not and we watched each other how we developed her practice so I actually ended up chopping up what I heard into the way that she painted by adding a detail so yeah. adding a line of dialogue at the same time she would add a, a line on the page slowly the picture would build up and I would go return to the same conversations and added more of the dialogue. So it actually made me change how I would ever have written a piece of text yeah. by mimicking how she worked mm -hmm. as a visual artist. So a soundscape. Uh, yeah, we ended up working with a musician who actually used soundscapes. <laughs> that was added in, and then we did it again because we were we worked in that hour long version with the National Theatre after that. So um, yeah, I, I've learned a lot from other people's artistic practices but also learned about how to navigate my career through other disciplines mm -hmm. I mean I think there's a lot to learn from visual artists in particular they've got probably the hardest job to sustain themselves yes. um because they've got to buy materials and mm -hmm. things whereas writers luckily we don't have to we have those kind of expenses mm -hmm. on top of try to produce work a lot of the time uh so yeah it's 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 uh, never what I expected to be doing when I was just, you know, writing my short stories about the fish community <laughs> that I'd end up doing this. But I think it's just, you know, having a creative practice yeah. means you're a creative person and you can apply yourself in yeah. in different ways. You're evolving. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you. yeah. And you yeah. get braver at trying these things yeah, once things. you've done a few of them. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd like to say the idea there about not limiting yourself as, as the idea of a writer is like someone crouched over the desk, you know, scribbling away. Yeah. Two AM, you know, when the muse strikes, etc. But um, what you've done is much broader than that, and that reminded me of the the Bill Gibb exhibition, which I I caught in twenty nineteen, and that that involved fashion, poetry, performance, podcast, um, and I wondered if that experimentation you've just described there is that was that a, a conscious decision, or is it just exposure to different other 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 practitioners, creative practitioners, and it's just something that's kind of developed. Yeah, it was it was an interesting evolution for that one because initially I actually wrote a story about Bill Gibb in my PhD mm. uh, as a short story, and it was a nice way to just for listeners who don't know who Bill Gibb might be, can we give a little quick yeah quick yeah bit, I can do that quick summary of, of who Bill Gibb was and yeah so I actually wrote a story about Bill Gibb in my PhD and Bill Gibb is someone from Fraserburgh uh, from my hometown who went on to be a massive fashion designer in the 1970s and 
you know, dress the likes of Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Bianca Jagger, Twiggy, uh, who was one of his best friends, and so on. So, and coming, he was a, from a farming background. So, I I was writing a lot of these fishing community stories, and I kind of wanted to break up the, you know, I wanted to do something slightly different, but still be connected to Doric or place or linking with elsewhere. So I wrote a story about him then, and I had this interest and encouragement to write more about him uh, for a longer work. So that was kind of a seed was planted during my PhD that then I followed up with when uh, the Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship opportunity came up and I applied to do, uh, to potentially write a novel length project about his life because that hadn't been done. And I felt like I was in a good position to do it, um, being someone who speaks Doric, but also a queer person coming from the same town. And so, uh, yeah, I got I went to France and I, I worked for a month there um, to have time to write. But I, I was also actually there alongside uh, some Swedish and Finnish artists and writers and who were doing really interesting things and working in different forms. And I kept writing these poems to try and kind of showcase the, his fashion shows. It felt like prose wasn't enough and it had to be poetry and have music to it in some sense. Um, a, a rhythm and a beat so ultimately it ended up that it was going to be impossible to make the book work because there was too many gaps in his story and it felt wrong to falsify it and I don't think his family would have been happy with me who I've been working with and interviewing so to keep it celebratory but also creative and interesting to me I really ended up focusing on the poems mm -hmm. and what I've been doing with those is actually taking on different voices to capture different perspectives and I changed my accent dialect a spoken word way uh, to be fashion reviewers or to be him or to be yeah, critics and so on and models so that actually the, the thought to do that came out of the the bus uh, shelter project because I was changing my voice to match people I'd heard in the street so I had been used to this code switching which I've been doing all my whole life but actually code switching into other people's languages dialects and I found there was a kind of energy to doing that so the project evolved into a spoken word film and podcast and I ended up working with students at Grey School of Art because I wanted to learn about fashion and then Look Again Festival got in touch saying can you, you know, create something for an exhibition space and that's how my work ended up getting pulled into being exhibited with them and then it successful in a way that Aberdeen Art Garley came to see it and said can we have it in the gallery. <laughs> it's just how these things evolve. It goes from, I, I wrote a short story 10 years ago and <laughs> ended up with a, an art exhibition, fantastic. essentially. So it, it, you really don't know where it'll, you know, Peach will take your the ideas and the seeds that are planted or the connections you make, how it will build. But it helps with, I think with fellowships or getting awarded things, it can attract attention to get other people to then want a piece of that or get involved with that. And it, it so that one has, yeah, grew arms and legs, and I've had other commissions since, <clears throat> from Feeney Dundee and things for smaller poetry commissions for dresses they have, and so uh, and we're working on a book, uh, an academic collection of papers, uh, from a symposium, which the poems may appear in that, um, and that's kind of in the proposal stage right now. So it never ends, like with that project, and it could evolve again in the future. But for now, I'm happy. It's you know, still a work in progress, then. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Progress. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just a story that really resonates with me, so I can't really ever let go of it, probably. <laughs> it's interesting how you know, you're speaking about code switching and fashion and all of this coming together. And code switching is also sort of very relevant in today's sort of multicultural world where people 
different language dialects are coming together and code switching is becoming an everyday used term mm -hmm. of how uh, language is evolving and not kind of set. So coming down to what you've been speaking about, installation and spoken word, could you tell our listeners a little more about the spoken word installation and how this has been interpreted in terms of your creative practice? Yes, I think the Bill Gibb project was the first kind of experiment for me around how do you bring poetry into an exhibition space? Uh, how do you present it as an installation? So that was great because I had the students who created the work that we could display alongside Bill Gibb's work. Um, but I also then printed poems on textiles and I had the film which could be heard. But I've done another installation since which was about oil and gas and I was commissioned by a curator who, who works with artists or writer artists um, to reflect Aberdeen's relationship with oil and gas. So I wrote this piece called Dreepin', which is about 12 minutes long and it's from the perspective of oil. Okay. Uh, who's Aberdeen's Northeast sugar daddy um, <laughs> with a sadomasochistic kind of thing going on with Aberdeen and how we, you know, and this boom and bust and reward and risk kind of economy. So that, I ended up actually creating a sculpture for that and creating an artwork. Uh, and it was a sound piece that was playing as well as you enter this dark space with these luminous plastic objects that are made from oil um, that represented like, you know, the, oil is often invisible and hidden mm -hmm. and that was kind of the point of the project was to how do we make oil visible so actually giving it a voice okay. and the sound side but then a physical presence and the, these yellow objects that glowed under uv light okay. because that's how you, you can find oil spills on yeah. beaches is using mm -hmm. uv light and things so it was yeah it pushed me to think you know i did feel a little bit like i've cheated my way into getting to be an artist for <laughs> a few months um but then i was like well i could do this like I've seen other artworks in Aberdeen that I'm like, oh, what is that? Or, you know, the usual, but um, I felt like it made sense to do it and to create an atmosphere. And I, I mean, otherwise I would happily work with an artist and commission them to, to create something that fits my piece. But that one felt like it made sense to just, you know, be supported by the curator to see what I could achieve myself. Um, but yeah, it, it turns out I don't really like painting random objects <laughs> and things but yeah never thought I'd do that as a writer it's a good thing to find out <laughs> yeah yeah it's great hearing you talk because um, I, I think the term writer and academic is way too restrictive a term for you definitely just like a creative practitioner aren't you mm. and writing forms one part of that yeah but going back to the writing and Doric like you were talking about you come from the northeast and the northeast fishing community and how that's a central part of, uh, of your identity, who you are, and uh, I guess just a natural way that you creatively express yourself. Um, and I wondered how you've seen, have you seen, you know, attitudes towards um, Doric in the written and spoken word change over the, since you did your PhD? It's like a decade or so now, isn't it? But Yeah, I think that's been a really fascinating thing about, I've come along at a time where everything's changed around perceptions of Scots language and Doric and um, opportunities as well. And I think what was interesting about the PhD was I was thinking, you know, I grew up with a sense of the fadingness of it all and the mm -hmm. sense of it was going away. Mm. And then during, you know, I was, and I was writing stories connected to that, but at the same time that was happening, you've got the government suddenly putting money into schools, promoting it. And, and so I was being asked to come into schools and 
be the Doric Ruffalo and all this stuff. <laughs> which is also the things you do as a writer to pay the bills. Yeah, <laughs> Shane doesn't look like the Gruffalo. For the <laughs> but I was wearing a costume one time for, for it. So, uh, And yeah, and so doing the PhD, uh, it was about, you know, how do I make this more accessible? And I was writing maybe more along the middle of the spectrum where I was kind of blending a more anglicised or accessible version of Doric in the Grasset Given style for that project. I wasn't writing strictly in strong northeast Scots, what is now I've recently been kind of encouraged or commissioned to create work that's more exclusively in Scots. Mm -hmm. And I didn't imagine that would be happening when I was doing my PhD. I thought it was more about I want people to kind of understand this while they still have maybe some sense of what Scots is. And I, I don't think Scots will ever go away, but I just mean in terms of um, my perception of the Scots that I spoke in my community was going almost a fringe, a fringe dialect that nobody knew about. Well, no, I think Doric is well perceived and well known. I just, I, mean, I guess, I mean, like just within certain nuances of it, go like this, you know, fishing communities, yeah, specific words and languages. Um, but yeah, in terms of Doric is like a big brand now, <laughs> and it's it, you know it's contentious sometimes within the Scots language speaking community because it, they kind of feel like. Doric speakers have that Doric exceptionalism or something around it, and um, that there's kind of actually a celebratory nature around Doric, whereas there's a more maybe sometimes a more contentious discussion and debate around Scots language. That Doric has been a label that's not attached to national kind of nationals or anything, kind of sidesteps maybe. That's it's it's quite interesting how that all plays together. Um, whereas in my work, you know, I it is probably about connecting with the northeast region, and so Doric is the way I would do that, but I have been commissioned to write more general Scots pieces right. and... Um, How do you find that, just speaking in your sort of native Doric is the, the one of the better mm. term, and then going into a broader sort of Well, it's often maybe poetry is more what I've been asked to do with kind of wider Scots um, pieces, so I have been commissioned to do something about Walter Scott and he didn't exclusively use like the North East Scots, he would he would use different dialects to represent different cultures from different areas. So for his uh, I think it was the two hundred fiftieth anniversary year, um I I did a piece inspired one of his short stories and I used a lot of the Scots words he used in that for the poem. And I've done other things like go through the Scots language dictionaries and find interesting descriptions of foxes um <laughs> look up the word Todd, which is the Scots word, and then finding other words that I didn't know that I could then use to kind of collage together a poem in a more kind of general Scots or older, even older Scots forms that maybe don't exist now. In the way that uh, kind of Hugh McDermott did, um, it would have been seen as maybe artificial or synthetic Scots, but it potentially could have been spoken or could have been used um, by a speaker, hypothetically. So... I think you can do that in poetry. I think it's harder to do that in prose because prose is more connected to realism and how people really talk. Uh, and I've noticed with translation, being asked to do, I, I get asked to do things in for schools for children, translating fairy tales, and um, you know, you think, how Doric do I make it? And uh, my sister's read some of the stories that other folk have written that have been really strongly Scotch, and it's like, well, that's not how we speak it. And I'm like, well, maybe they speak it like that, so we just yeah, it's just those days, yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting um, how perceptions change, but I think awareness and validity to the language is really growing. I'm going to be speaking to the parliament cross parliamentary group next week for Scots language. Um, so you know, really, there's a cross parliamentary group across all the political spectrum that are interested in supporting Scots, 
is maybe something that, yeah, I just couldn't have imagined being the case 15, 20 years ago when I was being told at school to not speak it. <laughs> mm. That's strange. It's great, uh, great that it has continued to flourish. Mm. Uh, so on that, you're going to read um, a poem for us that you performed at, uh, live with, um, with cellist Eileen Sweeney in way we're 2022, is that? Yeah, the, the, the uh, composer was Eileen and the cellist is Emily de Simone. Ooh, yeah, right, yeah, okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I was different folk behind each part, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the poem or do you want to just go ahead and... I'll say a little bit, just um, to introduce it, it's... It, this was actually for a multidisciplinary project where I worked with a textile artist <laughs> and uh, she stitched these haikus onto um, weavings that were hung up around the city and we actually installed it just before lockdown and then it ended up being something people could walk around on their daily walk <laughs> to help <laughs> have something to look at um, and so these are little haikus inspired by the things that I love about Aberdeen and um, in the terms of you know, being haikus, kind of the seasons to nature and the passage of time, so, mm -hmm. so yeah, I call them the Doric Dwarms. Bide a wee minty, lug in to my reveries, wished this city. A breeze flickers ruin all Aberdeen's cobbled streets, pink, petal, rain. Simmer is here, we a fight sheet to har to blanket us. Carl wave a water. The bus weeks on past us drukit rats. Rishala leaves in the gowden garden, the scurry skite. Folk squint their een on the cal winter street, low, yala, sun. Than waterfa, in Johnston gardens we cross the brig together. The crews o' doos echo through the tunnel, nay alone new. You rush past our fast and pecking hard, nae seeing this too shall pass. Mica will glister and the darkest will granite if you just let it. It's a beautiful poem, Shane. What I like about it is uh, you mentioned, you know, lockdown and you captured the stillness of that, I think, in the poem and the way you read it especially, the whole, that, that sense of stillness that we all had during the pandemic and the little details that we all found solace in. I think that's that's all the way through the poem. It's really lovely. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The social pass that came out so really, you know, that's something everyone should hold on to. Everything was just a pass, good or bad. Yeah, well, I mean, I actually wrote it before any lockdown happened. Really? Just, it was just about, you know, the struggle of being in Aberdeen sometimes, probably, <laughs> <But> <laughs> through the winter. Yeah, yeah, winter anyway. but I think, um, and then it just ended up being so, you know, relevant to them what actually happened, yeah, totally, and that kind of keeping totally. that, you know, dark days, but there, there's a glimmer of hope mm -hmm. if you look for it sort of thing, yeah. so. Yeah. Amazing. It's interesting for somebody who's new to Doric to hear all of this work around Doric. I mean, even more more casual way, there are social media celebrities and things doing yeah. A lot of preserving of you know, funny content in Doric, so it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think, I think one of the pull or draw to it, if you think about things like artificial intelligence and uh, you know, people being able to just type in things and they'll write a story, yeah. I oh. think, you know, are things becoming generic with yeah. globalisation or anything like that? Yeah. The sphere and things are generic, I think people are turning to what makes us different sometimes linguistically and celebrating that, uh, how that's connected to our identities, but I did 
go on chat GPT the other day and type in like, to create a poem in Doric and it actually was coming up with some Doric words and it made sense, but it was, it was rubbish, like everything. Oh. But the fact it was actually spelling things like fit rather than another Scots, you know, just general Scots wit or whatever was surprising. So I was like, okay, it can, because Google Translate can't do Scots, yeah. can't do Doric, but ChatGBT can. ChatGBT is, it can be another podcast altogether. It's scary, uh, as yeah, in yeah, yeah. Uh, intellectual property rights. I mean, anybody could be yeah. creating a, oh, well, it's, now it's an a election, whole new I'm world. really like worried about, you know, marking yeah. someone's story or essay and, like, but I think you know I can I would be able to tell so don't to all students I don't because people because there's just something off about what comes out you know in terms of how the language is used just like when people use Google Translate and the translation's never right mm. yeah you just have the sense that something's not right but obviously I how long that'll, that'll yeah. be yeah. for them give it another ten years and you don't know what's going to happen <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll all be getting filmed doing exams and writing our work to prove it's real and exactly. yeah but there is something about you know. That's why I do think there is special about you know looking at minority languages and dialects mm. and um, tapping into that because there's things that aren't even in the, so this the Scots language dictionary that me and my family say or other communities say that aren't captured in those spaces so that um, you know might still make things unique and different and interesting mm -hmm. and constantly changing. I guess all this is central as well to your uh, your role with uh, Scott Scriver with the National Library of Scotland and. Could you tell us more about that? You know the potential outputs from it and how how you uh, balance it or how it feeds into your your sort of academic research, yeah. you know, role. Yeah, so I, I got awarded Scott Screever for a year before I, uh, I applied for the post, or or, or or roughly at the same time it was all kind of happening um, before I joined the university, and I'd actually applied for it a few years ago and didn't get it. And was gutted, but it, it was at the right time. It came up this year that they'd kind of shifted from it being National Scots Screever to they're moving around different regions. They had or an Orkney Scots Screever last year, oh, right. and this time it was the Aberdeenshire Scots Screever, and it just was a no brainer not to apply for it, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though it might have would have potentially impacted on my you know, commitments to my last job, um, which wasn't research based. It was, I was a, a learning engagement manager for a, an arts charity, so. It aligns so well with you know my writing practice, so it is my writing practice Absolutely. what I'm doing, and it's just worked out well that the you know what I do at Aberdeen uh, University is half teach and half research contract. So my re for for now my, a lot of my research time is focused on what I'm working on for Scott Screever, which I probably would have been working on anyway without having Scott Screever thing attached to it. But to have the time to go down to Edinburgh and look at archives, um, and connect with. Scots language, like older Scots language material, and to be inspired to write new work from that is kind of the main focus. And the project I'm doing is actually inspired by ballads that were from a ballad repertoire of a woman from Old Aberdeen, and uh, that were collected in the mid 18th century, called Anna Gordon, uh, also known as Mrs. Brown of Falkland. And her ballads ended up in Walter Scott's Minstrelsy. So there's a lot of ties with the, the Walter Scott's Research Centre and with old Aberdeen, she lived in Humanity Mance. Her father oh. was a philosophy lecturer at Aberdeen University, uh, or at Marshall, one of the, when they were separate institutions, one of them, uh, but she lived in old Aberdeen. So it's just, all feels like things have fallen into place yeah. for Scott Screever and this, you know, taking on the lectureship here. Um, but my, my work that I'm creating isn't like, oh, here's a ballad and I'm writing a story that's directly linked to it. I'm actually connecting it with my memories from my childhood where I find resonance with the ballad uh, so it's basically about you know growing up in a fishing community 
and all the wild things that that entails, <laughs> essentially. And it's a, a lot stronger Northeast Scots than uh, so the prose I did in my PhD because okay. you know I've been given the kind of validity and push to do that. Uh, and I read some of it for the first time on Friday at a queer spoken word night thing that was happening um, called Crack that was organised by a student uh, and, and supported by Look Again Festival. And uh, I was a bit nervous about sharing some of the work from it for the first time and actually sharing creative non-fiction because I haven't really written much autobiographical, semi-biographical work. Often my stories are kind of slightly a nugget of something from real life and then pushed in a different direction. So it's a bit more vulnerable sharing something. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I found that like you can't, I can't not get the voices right because the voices and my memories in my head. It's, it's quite strange to perform it and it seemed to go down well. So I'm looking forward I feel more confident in that as a project and that people will receive it well, um, at least in a spoken word context. It'll be interesting to see yeah. how they feel about it on the page in time. Um, and then I'm looking at you know, other things I find, just digging around in the archives, other things that maybe inspire a poem or a, a kind of performance piece uh, from a, like I've written a couple of poems inspired by petition letters around the Union of Parliaments that were kind of partly in Doric, partly in Gaelic and English all melded together uh, and kind of making those accessible to a wider audience by converting them into poems rather than the letters of finding key phrases or using the collage process. I often do with verbatim, that's a big part of my practice other than writing from experience or mm -hmm. um, in the same way that, you know, I just, I like to find inspiration from whatever because I feel, you know, after doing the PhD, I think I scraped a barrel of uh, <laughs> fishing community stories, but then apparently not because now I'm writing a creative nonfiction book potentially. Uh, but yeah, it's been really great to be encouraged to and have the framework and structure of the Scots Screever to do that. And part of it is also promoting, you know, being the face of Scots yeah. for a year. And as I've been going out awards and random, you know, Scots Drag Music Awards, Scots Language Awards. It's just like kind of a higher visibility profile yeah. for my own writing, for Doric, for Northeast Voices, I think. It, it finishes up in summer, uh, but I'll probably be working on my project a long time after that. It's just been a good starting point to get that going and to get my head around. As you've all probably been doing in your first year of PhD, you kind of work out. So to have one year supported in that framework has been really helpful to map out the well, rest what of the you project. Might do, yeah. Yeah. Can I just ask quickly, um, if you were given free reign with the archive or, or or was a central component of it to be to work in these ballads by Mrs Brown? Was that identified at the start? Or? I identified them because okay. I knew of them. And so I, that was part of your proposal? Yeah, so. I think I had a nugget in my head around uh, wanting to do this something. I, I use some ballads and songs in my PhD, so it always comes back somewhere. Yeah. Uh, snippets of things that linked with stories. So I had this, always had this concept of you returning to these ballads and then reimagining them or resonating with them uh, in you know contemporary times, or you know, I'm writing about in the 90s right now, but try to find parallels and you know how, how is the culture changed or not changed between how people treat each other or gender or um, class like what mm -hmm. that's kind of what I'm interested in exploring and also how we use language because ballads actually are quite clever in that they they take from other dialects or slightly anglicize themselves to fit rhymes and things and so there's actually are quite aesthetic pieces that actually they're not worried about being authentic to exactly how we speak but actually see themselves as a work of art and an aesthetic thing and I think that's how I like to view creative writing in Scots as well that you should have the uh, opportunity to experiment and play around with how you spell things that shouldn't be set in stone mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of creative potential through that. Brilliant.
Thanks. That's great. It's a great insight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and speaking more about the academic side, I know that you've had you've been involved with medical humanities conferences. So, um, how do you tend to respond to the questions of ethics, and what are your thoughts about navigating differences and sort of improving conversation between sort of different disciplines, which are sort of very distinct, and to bridge that gap when it comes to humanities and sciences, and to yeah. facilitate things being done ethically, but yet sort of being able to uh you know cross the hurdle of getting approvals and yeah it's interesting i think um in terms of ethics it's interesting as a creative writer because rules are there to be broken <laughs> as a creative writer so you know then i'm using things as verbatim and things there's an ethical question around that because i'm take essentially taking people's voices and then reshaping them but uh, I mean, that's why I had to kind of push back against myself around mm -hmm. things like the Bill Gibb project and going, mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable making up someone's yeah. life story. Other people could and and certain people would be fine to do that with, but um, it didn't feel right in that project to go down that route. Um, taking verbatim, I would then, you know, within a creative practice, I do think around things like I need to anonymize it. I need mm -hmm. to almost remove it from the place you wouldn't even know yeah. the sources, and yeah. I, but also I will state sources so mm -hmm. you know create the Bill Gibb poem some of that's verbatim from uh, actual reviews of his work mm -hmm. that are in newspaper cuttings that no one's probably looked at in 40 years so yeah. no one would probably care that I, yeah. if I didn't reference it but to me I care yeah. so I do have that academic integrity being applied to my projects mm -hmm. that maybe other writers you know would just go bulldoze their way through because yeah. they're like well I'm a creative of course I take things yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what you know, there's that thing around it's not where you take it from it's where you take it to mm -hmm. and the, you know collage and those yeah. processes so that's the back of my mind but working across disciplines you learn a lot about processes and I do think working with other disciplines can be restrictive mm -hmm. and they can have stricter ways of working so you know working in communities working in hospitals yeah. you do sometimes have to taper how you go about delivering mm -hmm. projects and I do think it's important especially with creative writers working with communities when you're actually inviting a community to come on board to the project and you're maybe going to use what they're saying yeah. or you're asking them to deliver a task but you know and then you're going to like reimagine or use their material to create a piece of work what are they getting out of it because that's kind of that's kind of that extractive mm -hmm. thing of like just taking from people and and they don't get any like yeah. so I think there's a lot of discussion around that across all creative disciplines mm -hmm. around how we work communities in a way that's not just for the sake of it yeah. uh, not taking advantage mm -hmm. and actually you're giving them something back so I've worked with artists and encouraged them to with through funding applications to actually include like giving materials and resources back to an arts group that you're working yeah. with so they can continue to work mm -hmm. onwards whereas they maybe have shaped your ideas for your project well what do they get back they get the opportunity to yeah. keep learning and working without you there um, mm -hmm. or you'll give them a free workshop on something else that they want to do. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about that respectful way of um, working across disciplines and one of the projects I did, I learned a lot about with that is uh, I was commissioned by a research, a maternal health research initiative at the university okay. a few years ago to work, to create a play um, in response to their research into sub-Saharan Africa and Asia around maternal health issues that come upon and try to evoke that mm -hmm. to an audience in Aberdeen and I was like I, now I'm like I should not have been the person to work on that but it actually ended up getting to work with people in hospitals in Zimbabwe and actually getting students who um, to get to go over and work in the hospitals from here and work with artists so 
it's yeah but that you know that was I was restricted by all the material because I actually had to stick to what they wanted to present mm-hmm. um, so they can see the possibility also that maybe they're ethically bound with or, or academically bound by the audiences they can reach and things mm-hmm. but they, they I think a lot of um, STEM subjects can see yeah. that the real need to actually engage with the arts oh, to it's... evoke what they're saying in ways that are more free than they yeah. can be yeah. <laughs> or you know that connect with audiences in a way that they can't because mm. of various reasons um, or even just getting someone to come in and think outside the box yeah. so you know go the, the medical humanities conference I'll be part of is reflecting back on the um, the GAT, pro- the Grampian Hospital's Arts Project to work on and actually saying, it's about Scots language, but I'm actually showing them how through looking at the artworks in the room mm-hmm. uh, and it's been about language and words that can connect with patients and um, not just treat their patients as patients, yeah. <laughs> see them as people. Yeah. And then a lot of them do and are very good at that anyway, but just giving them other tools and, and yeah. options. So we're all learning from each other, I think, in yeah. those exchanges and uh, I know your own research will be doing a lot of that. So. <laughs> yeah, which is why, I mean, it's absolutely crucial to be ethical but it's it's also important to have these conversations across disciplines so that you know people who are probably working within specific disciplines also understand and uh, you know it's not just uh, multidisciplinarity for the sake of it yeah. and it's actually having sort of a dialogue yeah 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 and it's I think that's thing I've always learned a lot and then applied it to my practice going forward mm-hmm. but I you know you cherry pick what works yeah. in your own practice and uh and I do think also, you know, I got to the conscious the other way of like, am I inhibiting my creativity by yeah. worrying too much about how I want to do certain yeah. things within an academic framework? Um, and maybe, you you know, it's about pushing back and actually changing the framework yes. by doing something that's outside yeah. of the scope of it. Absolutely. Sometimes. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a funny one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. And it's, I think it's quite valuable for other researchers listening to you coming from all the experience that you have. I hope so, and like, it's probably confusing a lot in a lot of ways as well. It's project by project, it changes, and the rules yeah. are different. So yeah. it's really context based with yeah. um, any partnership working in communities and multidisciplinary. It's, it's yeah. and then there's personalities to add into it, and yeah, yeah all those other aspects that come into play. <laughs> Thanks so much for it's a, such a brilliant insight into what's been an incredible journey since your PhD to now. It's packed full of. of Lots of engagement, and uh, but there's that common thread of uh, identity, place, language, community, which I think is really nice. Um, to, to close, is there any advice you'd like to pass on to people like us, who are, well, perhaps younger people like us, I don't know, who are approaching the end of the PhD and then looking to, you know, take their practice um, beyond that, whether it's, you know, whoever in the school, not just writers. Yeah, I think it's just don't limit yourself to maybe what you thought you're supposed to do with a PhD. And that's what I mean, I, and I, or maybe what you thought, you know, a writer is supposed to do or academic is supposed to do. You know, I used to think I had to get a book published to be, you know, regardless of what everything else I was doing, if I didn't have an award-winning book, none of it mattered. And actually <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, you got an award-winning book and I hardly earned any money. Uh, you know, book deals and upfront advance and all that don't really exist <laughs> nowadays. And I and I, I think, you know, people don't realise how much could be earned and not to go down the money route too much, but like you're doing all these little bits and pieces of other projects mm-hmm. or sometimes big commissions come along because you're actually out there engaging with people and doing things in real life rather than behind a computer screen 
for years for a project that you know might never see the light of day. I think you know keep both things going, keep your writing up, but also remember there's a world out there to engage with and. If you're not engaging with it, what's the point in your research? What's the point in your creative practice if it's not for other people and just yourself? Um, because otherwise it's just a vanity project then and who will care? Yeah. And where will that get you? Um, essentially negative, ten dollar. No, no, oh, I guess it's like, just go, yeah, go out, collaborate. And yeah, it's, I think everything's more of a collaboration than people realise. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of myths about the writer or the academic that aren't actually true if you look around. Especially at Aberdeen where it's a kind of more collaborative ethos, I think. That's great. That's a really good point to finish on to engage with other people and community mm -hmm. and take practice as wide as you want to take it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great speaking to you. You Thank too. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs>